Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. A dictator for a day. The former president with an affinity for strongmen doubles down on his comments about being a dictator on day one of a second term. Former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton has spent a lot of time with Donald Trump and with dictators, and he's coming up first. Plus, the fight for reproductive freedom in Texas gets a name and a face as Kate Cox's story grips the state and the nation. The Texas Supreme Court pauses a ruling that would allow her to get an abortion. Also today, the president of UPenn resigns amid an uproar over her handling of questions on anti-Semitism during a congressional hearing. UPenn professor and best-selling author Adam Grant joins me with his reaction. And later, with the Iowa caucuses just around the corner, a deep dive into one of the most perplexing relationships in politics today, the one between Donald Trump and evangelical voters. politics for a long time and in government for a long time, as did my first guest. And sometimes that work included planning for the day one priorities of presidential candidates, specifically for me, for Barack Obama and, of course, Joe Biden. Obviously, a lot goes into that process. Day one priorities are a reflection of the challenges the country is facing at the time. They're also a reflection of values. Barack Obama took office during the worst economic crisis in modern history. And during that time, he worked with the outgoing Bush administration to pass measures that would help bring the economy back from the brink of collapse. Joe Biden took office during the worst pandemic in history, or in modern history, and his primary focus was on bringing the country together to address the COVID crisis and also put in place measures to help do that. Obviously, Donald Trump has plans to go about governing a little bit differently. I want to go back to this one issue, though, because the media has been focused on this and attacking you under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill, drill, drill. That's not not retribution. I'm going to be... I'm going to be, you know, he keeps, we love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Other than day one. So, I mean, his policy missives there, closing the border and drill, 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 aren't aren't exactly surprising aspirations for him. There are also many in his party who might agree with that. But neither are his plans for how he would approach the presidency. That's where I want to focus, because Being a dictator is not like a light switch. You can just turn it on and turn it off. Nobody that starts as a dictator typically relinquishes power to somehow reinvent themselves into a legitimate leader. I mean, that's the point, to hold on to power. And for anyone who thought this was some punchline that came out of left field, here's Donald Trump during a speech just last night. Baker today in the New York Times, he said uh, that I want to be a dictator. I didn't say that. I said I want to be a dictator for one day. But the New York Times said, and you know why I wanted to be a dictator? Because I want a wall 
right? I want a wall and I want to drill, drill, drill. It's not exactly a helpful clarification there in his remarks, but it's not like the rhetoric is out of step with what we've been hearing from Trump over the past few weeks and even before that. Like, it's not like he had an out-of-character gaffe where he said he would be a dictator or wanted to be a dictator. Remember, he has echoed the language of dictators, saying he wants to root out the vermin. He mirrored the tactics of, of autocrats, projecting onto his rivals what he himself was actually doing. He has promised to use the justice system to go after anyone who dared critique him during his first term, including people who even worked for him before. And he has reportedly mapped out plans to unleash the military on protesters. That, by the way, is another day one priority. Trump has consistently told us what he's going to do. It is serious, and even more so because of the people who continue to prop him up. The enablers and collaborators, as former Representative Liz Cheney calls them in her new book. Listen to Kash Patel, who served as Trump's counterterrorism advisor on the National Security Council and as chief of staff to the acting secretary of defense at the end of the administration. We will go out and find the conspirators, not just in government, but in the media. Yes, we're going to come after the people in the media who lied about American citizens, who helped Joe Biden rig presidential elections. We're going to come after you. So we are going to come after the media is exactly the kind of thing that authoritarian leaders and governments do. And that's coming from someone who is expected to serve in a senior national security role in a possible Trump second term. So Trump is already building the infrastructure that will enable him to act on his impulses. When he tells us what his plans are, like he did once again this week, more than once this week, we should believe it. Joining me now is a former member of the Trump administration, former National Security Advisor, Ambassador John Bolton. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining me here this afternoon. I, I want to start with this. I mean, you have dealt with dictators. I mean, in your role as a, a national security high-level official over the years, do you see similarities in some of the t tactics that Trump is taking to what you've seen from authoritarian dictators? Well, certainly what he has tried to do in the past and what he's saying he's going to do in the future go well beyond any uh, conceivable conduct by prior American presidents, no matter how much they were considered. Uh, Nixon, Richard Nixon looks like a choir boy next to Donald Trump. Uh, so I think it's uh, it's him saying these things publicly. Ironically, I have to say, I hope will be hopeful, be helpful, because I think people should wake up to the reality uh, and although the polls don't look uh, particularly good on the Republican side, to continue to make efforts to deny him the nomination. I know you're very hopeful about that, and I want to dig into this. I do think that, that these tactics he's using, or what we're seeing him project that he wants to do in a second term, are important because, and you have dealt with, again, dictators around the world. It's not typically, though, a sign of strength, is it? It's a sign that they're weak because they're trying to hold on to power. Well, it's in part, it's a sign he doesn't have the slightest idea what he's doing. I mean, most presidents we think of have policy agendas. Trump does not have a policy agenda. He doesn't have a philosophy other than the greater glorification of Donald Trump. So I think it's completely accurate and, and, and quite consistent for Trump to say he wants retribution against his adversaries. And he will try and use the Justice Department. He may try and use the Defense Department. Uh, and we saw evidence of it in the first term. I I don't know whether I'm happy to say, but I was certainly a target for the publication of my book. Mm. He, he said in more times than I can count that he wanted John Kerry prosecuted for violating the Logan Act, which, by the way, he was never able to do. The real the real question in a second term is how much of that he will uh, go beyond uh, pontificating about and actually try. I think the level 
uh, that he will try is much higher than in the first term. And I think that should be a warning to everybody. And, you know, you've said, which I think is interesting, a, a constitutional we could be facing a constitutional crisis on a daily basis. And I'm quoting from you. But what, how do if world leaders around the world, other countries, I mean, if, if he proceeds with what he's saying he's going to do with what you just outlined, how do they view that? How do they view the United States? Well, I think it's going to cause uh, tremendous damage to the United States internationally, not not to mention the damage it will cause domestically. And I, I said uh, in 2020 that what he the damage he did in his first term was not insignificant, but it was all repairable. Mm. The damage he could do in a second term, and I say that again, even though the terms are disconnected, may be irreparable. And, and, and that, I think, is what's dangerous. Now, I have to say, on the other hand, I don't think people should be apocalyptic about mm -hmm. this. Uh, the framers of the Constitution didn't write the document just for sunny days. It has the elements of structural constitutionalism make it difficult for Trump to do a lot of what he wants. Doesn't happen automatically. Every citizen's got to be a part of it. But I think if you if you fall into a doom and gloom perspective that it, it's over, if he's elected, it's just over. Uh, you're hel you're helping to give him what he wants. I know you've said that before. You don't want to be alarmist, and and I think sometimes people that is that is a natural place for people to go, and people there are things to be alarmed about. I do because you've spent so much time in government. I do want to ask you about some of the specific pieces, because I think that's important for people to understand. Like, for example, he has said he could attempt to use his authority. I mean, he said he could use it, the military to, to stay in power. That's one of the things that uh, Representative Cheney has touted that others have, have spoken about. Are you concerned about that, that, him, that he could use the military to try to stay in power? Sure. I think he will try and do that. There, there is one difference, though, in a second Trump term, which is the Constitution is utterly unambiguous. He doesn't get a third term. So so efforts to stay in power beyond that are in a way different from what we saw in 2020, where a second term would have been le legitimate if he had actually won. I think, though, that the attempt to order the military to do things that are illegal uh, or unconstitutional is, is how this constitutional crisis on a daily basis gets started. Because uh, I think uh, most military leaders take their oath to the Constitution seriously. And if they're asked to do something or ordered to do something uh, they think is illegal, uh, that's where we're going to see the crisis. They either refuse the order and get fired or they resign. Uh, and that that's how it will develop. And that's that's where a lot of this it's it's not when Trump has an idea, it's not self-executing. Well, that is assuming, though, and you've sat in the situation room in many circumstances. I'm sure there have been many moments. I know there have been many moments where you've stood up and disagreed. Trump has kind of conveyed and his team has that he's going to surround himself with enablers. So what happens if he's in the situation room and everybody is a yes man and a yes woman? What is the danger of that? Well, I think that's very serious. But let's just take his political appointees for a second. Number one, uh, part depends on who controls the Senate. But I'm not sure a, a lot of them, maybe even any of them in key departments are going to get confirmed by the Senate very easily. So he'd be dealing with a series of acting people. Uh, and even some of the people he uh, nominates or thinks are loyal to him who go through this uh, test that they're giving potential job applicants may come to a point where they say no. But even if all the political people say yes, they've still got to turn in the military, at the Justice Department, to career people to actually do it. And I think in justice, you'll see the same kinds of resignations. Uh, it could result in really in very widespread resignations, this would in part bring the government to a halt. And that's that's why this constitutional crisis, I think, is something that uh, that it is it is going to prevent Trump from acting as quickly uh, as he thinks he's going to be able to. 
What about you spent some time in the Justice Department? What about pardon power? and his use of pardon power. Is that an area that concerns you? There aren't. I mean, there are historic precedents, but there is not a system that is preventing a president from pardoning who he wants. No, the the, the pardon power, uh, it doesn't have uh, checks in, in the Constitution itself. There's a very elaborate process uh, in the department to grant pardons. Trump essentially ignored it. Uh, but there were a lot of pardons at the end of the Clinton administration, too, that were that were dubious, to say the least. It's it's uh, it's something that he could do. And I'm sure he will do. And I'm sure he will abuse it. Well, there are certainly many some in the end of the Clinton administration. Democrats, uh, people have been critical of. But I think what Trump is saying here is he's going to go after his enemies and pardon people who help him, which feels like a whole different level of concern. Right. No, I think I think we should be concerned about it. Uh, but a lot of the people who uh, went into the Capitol grounds on January the 6th are going to be uh, in jail still when when he might be taking office and, and they're being pardoned uh, could have an effect. I hope those people have been chastened sufficiently in prison uh, that that they don't come back and go back to what they were doing on January the 6th. But that's part of the struggle. This is going to be no, nobody. I don't think anybody should have any illusions. This is going to be easy. I'm, I'm I, what we want is not to overstate the threat certainly not to understate the threat. We want to assess the threat accurately so that our responses uh, deal with it effectively. Ambassador Bolton, thank you so much for joining me with your Christmas tie on today. I appreciate be here. being here with me this afternoon. And coming up, UPenn's president resigns after a tense congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. One of the school's most popular professors, Adam Grant, joins me next. Plus, one woman's fight to terminate a non-viable pregnancy has led to a legal showdown in Texas. Former state Senator Wendy Davis joins me in just a few minutes. And later, my deep dive into the fascinating relationship between Donald Trump and E. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday evangelical Christians. We're just getting started this hour and we will be right back. As the war between Israel and Hamas continues, so do important debates about both the brutality of the war, the impact on civilians, and the combating of terrorism. And those debates are happening as anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are on the rise here at home. This week, this broader issue became more narrowly focused on college campuses after presidents of some of the top U.S. universities testified before Congress on how their schools are combating some of these problems. And some of their answers were, to put it bluntly, poor. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking 
specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. So those responses from University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill received pretty widespread condemnation. And yesterday, Penn announced that she had voluntarily resigned as president, just last night, actually. But to step back for a moment, what is happening on college campuses is not the totality of the problem. It's just a part of the larger problem of the discourse surrounding this conflict and important debates around this conflict, how to recognize multiple truths at once. The single most horrific act of violence against Jewish people since the Holocaust, which happened on October 7th, the Netanyahu government's resulting military campaign that has killed thousands of Palestinian civilians, including thousands of children, and rising incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia across the country. Joining me now is Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist, a podcast host, and a best-selling author. He's out with a new book called Hidden Potential, which tennis great Serena Williams says will, quote, shatter your assumptions of what it takes to improve and succeed. That is quite an endorsement. I also love this book, and we're going to talk about it in a moment. He's also consistently voted one of the best professors at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so, we have to talk to him, of course, about the news that came out last night um, and then get to the book. So, Adam, I want to start with that, because last night, uh, Liz McGill, it was announced that she was resigning. And, and you are you have been a tenured professor at University of Pennsylvania for some time. So I wanted to get your uh, reaction to that resignation. Well, Jen, look, this is a, a tough time to be a university president. There have been many tests this fall, and I think Congress was the final exam. And unfortunately, we heard from lawyers when we needed leaders. And I think, as every professor knows, when you fail a test that big, you don't get to keep your job. Uh, I think after losing the, the trust of a lot of stakeholders and many followers, you're no longer capable of leading effectively. So her, her resignation last night, uh, you know, there's been a, a, a bit of a victory lap by those who called for it out there publicly, which my bet is you're not exactly for. And her resignation is not exactly going to solve the rise in anti-Semitism, the rise also in Islamophobia. This is a kind of a big question, but are, or do you think the policies in place right now at the University of Pennsylvania are, are enough? Honestly, I don't. Um, and I don't have any easy answers. I think policing speech is an extremely complicated and, um, and dangerous endeavor. Um, but I think it's been a long time since our policies have been reviewed and rethought. And I think we have a responsibility to take a look at them and say, we don't want to have a hostile environment. We also need to be consistent in our moral clarity and our enforcement. Um, if we're going to police speech around telling students that you know, they can't cause emotional discomfort for their classmates, then we certainly need to be equally consistent and strong on the question of, you know, can they call for violence against students and threaten their physical safety? So mm -hmm. I think we have a lot of thinking and hard work ahead and uh, not entirely sure where it's going to land. We'll have to have you back on. And I want to listen to your podcast when you talk about this, Adam, because you know I'm a very frequent podcast listener of your of all of your endeavors. I do want to ask you about this amazing book um, because and, and you have to come back and talk more about it. But one of my favorite things you make clear in this book is that being underestimated can be empowering. And I would say and we, you and I've talked about this, that through my career, I, I know I've experienced, I've been underestimated many times, more often than not. I do find it empowering. I, you, you talk about a lot of people who experience 
experienced that, who are way more famous than me, way more successful. But explain to me, why is that true from a scientific standpoint? Because it feels counterintuitive. Yeah, this is research by my colleague Samir Nurmuhammad at Wharton. What he shows is that when other people doubt you, um, that can actually turn into a source of motivational fuel. What a lot of people will do when they feel like underdogs is say, you don't know me or you don't know this task. So I'm going to prove you wrong and rise to the occasion. And look, Jen, we can't always control what people expect of us. They're always going to be doubters and naysayers. So when we face those, those critics, one of the first things we ought to do is ask, is this person credible to judge me? And if not, mm -hmm. let me shatter those false expectations. That feels like a hard thing to determine. Is this person credible to judge me sometimes? Which, again, you talk about that as well here. I also wanted to ask you about uh, this term social skydiving, because this also feels counterintuitive, where you basically say that you're learning something new. When you're learning something new, you should try to increase your number of mistakes. I mean, this puts you kind of in a real position of vulnerability as somebody who's just kind of changed industries myself, but that's not what most people do. So why is that the right approach and why, why does that work? Well, I think the mistake a lot of us make when we're trying to learn something new is we, we basically take tiny risks. And that means we don't challenge ourselves and we don't stretch beyond our comfort zone. Um, I had to, I actually had to face this with public speaking. Um, I'm an introvert. I was extremely shy. I was uncomfortable getting on stage. So I could have, you know, practiced lots of five minute speeches, but instead I said, I want to dive in headfirst to the deep end. And I got some friends to let me give entire guest lectures in their classes. I don't know why they agreed, but standing in front of an audience for a whole hour at a time, um, I screwed up a lot more, but I also learned a lot more and accelerated my, my own progress. I mean, that's maybe why you're one of the favorite professors at the University of Pennsylvania and also why you have such a great podcast. Um, Adam Grant, thank you as always. This book is amazing. It's a, it will open people's minds, so I totally recommend it. Thank you so much for joining me uh, this afternoon. And coming up, a woman in Texas hangs in an agonizing state of limbo as the courts decide whether or not she can terminate a non-viable pregnancy. Later, I'll do my best to explain Donald Trump's relationship with religion, and in particular, evangelical Christians. It's a head scratcher. Tim Alberta literally wrote the book on that topic, and he joins me in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. Kay Cox lives with her husband and two children outside of Dallas, and she is 20 weeks pregnant with their third child. Recently and tragically, doctors discovered that their baby has a rare genetic condition, one that in all likelihood, according to the doctors, will result in a stillbirth or death soon after the child is born. According to her doctor, carrying the pregnancy to term could risk her own health and future fertility, and she wants to have more kids. So Kate asked a judge to make an exception to the state's draconian laws so she could receive an abortion. On Thursday, a judge quickly granted her request, saying, quote, the idea that Ms. Cox wants desperately to be a parent and this law might actually cause her to lose that ability is shocking and would be a genuine miscarriage of justice. But for the state of Texas and its Republican attorney general, that guy, Ken Paxton, a guy who, by the way, was recently impeached by the Texas House and is still under federal indictment for securities fraud, that apparently didn't meet his well-earned moral standard. That's sarcastic, if you couldn't tell. After that judge's ruling, uh, Paxton put a letter threatening prosecution for anyone who followed the judge's order. That means doctors and even Kate's husband. Paxton also asked the Texas Supreme Court to issue an emergency stay to block the lower court's order. And late on Friday night, the Texas Supreme Court granted that stay. So Kate Cox is forced to wait. 
as Ken Paxton, ironically, sits on his own high horse and attempts to persuade the state to override doctors and decide on Kate's behalf what is best for her health and her family. Joining me now is Wendy Davis. She's a former state senator from Texas, well known for her 13-hour-long filibuster to block abortion restrictions about a decade ago. She's now a senior advisor for Planned Parenthood, Texas Votes. Wendy, I'm so appreciative that you could be here with me this afternoon. And, and I just wanted to start by asking, you've been talking to women in Texas about abortion rights. What stands out to me so much about this story is that it really puts a face on something so many women are experiencing in Texas and around the country. And I wanted to ask you just what you're hearing, if the tenor, the conversations have changed at all over the last couple of days. Thank you so much for having me on, Jen. You know, the story is a tragic story. Um, and unfortunately, it's just one of many that people are experiencing around our state. There are more than 20 women involved in a lawsuit right now, represented by the Center for Reproductive Rights, one of our partners who's also representing Ms. Cox in this case, each of whom was put into some physical danger as a consequence of their doctor's inability to perform the abortion medication abortion medical care that they needed. And that is the, the reality on the ground. And behind those stories are so, so many more. It's the mm -hmm. tragedy of what happens when a legislature gets involved in these healthcare decisions. You responded. I mean, the Ken Paxton of this all is really, as you could tell by my introduction, has stuck with me. I mean, you responded by saying this is the, an ugly dance in Texas, one step forward, one giant threatening step back. What does the Texas Supreme Court decision practically mean for women in Texas? I mean, there are already restrictions, but those who are trying to get the health care they need that are looking for these type of exceptions. You know, the important thing about what Ken Paxton did, and this is part and parcel of what we've seen every single time someone in Texas tries to challenge the abortion bans that are in place here. He threatens our laws in Texas right now allow the prosecution of a doctor if he is seen or she is seen to have violated this law, not only to lose their medical license, but to spend the rest of their life in prison. And mm. that's the point here, that even where a court says it's okay, which of course happened a couple of days ago, Ken Paxton immediately comes behind that decision and says, it doesn't matter. We are still going to sue you criminally and hold you liable for what you do. And it's that climate of fear that they've been succeeding in for even since before Dobbs uh, decision came down from the Supreme Court here. And it has created such a tenor of fear. And of course, for so many women across our state, a situation where their health and their lives are literally endangered. It is basically impossible to ignore the fact that this one man still under indictment is trying to insert himself as some sort of moral authority for the state. So I'm, I'm glad that you raised that. What do you think? I mean, you've touched on a lot of this, but for people trying to understand who live in states where there are are not the same restrictions, what do people not understand about what it's like to live in a place like Texas right now? If you are a young woman, childbearing age, trying to make decisions about your own health care. Well, more and more, we are hearing that women are afraid to become pregnant in our state. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, more and more, we're hearing that people don't want to relocate to our state. We are losing OB-GYN doctors who are leaving our state. We have fewer and fewer people who want to get their OB-GYN residencies here in Texas. And so not only is it creating a crisis for women who are seeking abortion care for a variety of reasons, but it's also a crisis for people who are seeking healthy pregnancy care and for whom so many, the only medical care they ever get is from their OB-GYN visit where cancers are discovered, cancers are discovered and so many other healthcare issues that now they are going to face the climate of what it means to have a dearth of these doctors in our state because the state has created such a tremendously difficult climate for them here. And I hope that what people will understand very importantly about these laws, there is no such thing as an exception. I know a lot of people think, well, yes, I think I could accept an abortion prohibition if it had reasonable exceptions. But Mm. the fact of the matter is lawmakers and attorney generals and judges are always the ones who get to decide whether the exception applies. And so far, we haven't seen it happen one single time in our state. I mean, this is such an an important point for people to hear. I mean, the Biden campaign is, is pointing to the Texas case, saying that if a Republican wins the White House, what's happening in Texas could be the reality, basically an abortion ban, because if there's no exceptions, that, that is essentially a national abortion ban. Is that something you think is realistic? I think it's absolutely a reality. And I hope that electorally, we will really press this point home. Recent polling showed that for Democratic women and independent women, abortion is the number one issue upon which they will vote next November. And it's important for us to keep sharing these human stories. I am so, so sad for Kate Cox and the experience that she's going through. I went through the exact same experience myself. And if we can just help people understand, even if you think you're never going to confront the need for an abortion, you or someone you love very likely will. And it's important that we protect this right in every state across this country. And the national election coming up next cycle is going to be such an important part of making sure that we can do that. Wendy Davis, thank you for telling your story, for telling Kate Cox's story, and thank you for uh, your time today. Up next, how exactly did evangelical Christians become one of Donald Trump's most loyal and unwavering voting blocks? I'm wondering, many of you maybe as well. It's one of the strangest stories in politics, and it's coming up next. We're back after this. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. 
So with Iowa's Republican caucus is just five weeks away. Can you believe that? It's worth pointing out that no voting block in that state has been more crucial to the outcome than evangelical Christians. And yet evangelicals have become the most steadfast, if unlikely, allies of Donald Trump. Even today, after everything he has said and done, Trump's hold over such a devoutly religious community remains something of a mystery. And their initial embrace of him was as nonsensical as it was unexpected, given Trump's profound ignorance of Christian teachings. That became obvious back in 2015, when Trump was specifically asked to name a favorite Bible passage. Any passage at all, any will do. But he simply wouldn't, or really more likely couldn't. I'm wondering what one or two of your most favored Bible uh, verses are well, and why. I, I wouldn't want to get into it because to me that's very personal. The Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. Even to cite a verse that no, you like? No, I don't want to do that. You're I mean, an Old Testament guy or a New Testament guy? Uh, probably equal. Probably equal. New Testament, Old Testament. Doesn't want to get into it. It's too personal. Then there was the time he famously referred to 2 Corinthians as 2 Corinthians. I hear this is a major theme right here, but 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 317, that's the whole ballgame. Well, his error was probably most apparent to very regular churchgoers. It was an especially glaring mistake to make at Liberty University, where he delivered that speech. But perhaps what should have been the biggest red flag to evangelicals was when Trump said he never sought forgiveness for his sins. Have you ever asked God for forgiveness? <laughs> I'm not sure I have. I just go and try and do a better job from there. I don't think so. I don't think so. But Trump's lack of basic understanding of the Bible is to say nothing of the man Trump actually is, which is almost more important. I mean, he's a deeply dishonest serial adulterer who has bragged about sexual abuse. Despite all of that, Trump won 81% of white evangelicals in 2016 somehow, a greater share of that vote than even George W. Bush received in 2004, who, by the way, was an actual born-again Christian. As uncomfortable as Trump may have been with Christian teachings, he didn't hesitate to wield the Bible as a political weapon. And he did so quite literally when he used it as a prop for a photo op in the spring of 2020, shown right there just after he violently removed peaceful protesters from Lafayette Park. But what's more troubling is that the evangelical community at large is buying what Trump is selling. That's the subject of a new book by Tim Alberta, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. He writes that, quote, in the year after Trump left office, there was one demographic group that most likely, most likely to believe that the election had been stolen, that vaccines were dangerous, that globalists were controlling the U.S. population, that liberal celebrities were feasting on the blood of infants, that resorting to violence might be necessary to save the country. White evangelicals. In backing Trump, countless evangelical voters have chosen to condone or overlook his behavior, behavior that feels like it should be completely at odds with their Christian values. As Alberta writes, their embrace of Trump has exposed, quote, the selective morality and ethical inconsistency and rank hypocrisy that had for so long lurked in the subconscious of the evangelical movement. Tim Alberta, by the way, grew up in this movement. So why do so many evangelicals continue to rationalize Trump's bad behavior? Well, luckily, Tim Alberta joins us next to answer that question. 
Welcome back. Joining me now is Tim Alberta, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of the new book, The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. It's quite a title, but it really is captured in this book. And I really appreciate you. You're so honest and forthright in this book about a community that is a mystery to so many people. So I wanted to start, I mean, because one of the things you really talk about in here is the permission structure that evangelicals have built, or some, many in the community, to justify Trump's depravity, as you put it. And those are terms you use. Explain to what lengths uh, they'll go to, the people you're referencing, to rationalize behavior that is so contradictory to what I think many of us would understand their values to be. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, your caveat a moment ago was the right one. Some of these people, Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about a a vast spectrum of individuals. And listen, I've encountered in my travels lots of people who voted for Trump in 16, even some who voted for him in 20, and who still feel sick about it and Mm. who are completely conflicted and don't know what to think about any of this, and yet they still care very deeply about abortion as an Mm -hmm. ethical issue, and so they're just torn. And then you have, at the one end of the spectrum, of course, this this growing faction of the sort of militant right-wing Christian nationalist types yeah. who are, are they're really, they, they've come to view Trump in many ways as their champion, as, as their protector. I mean, it's not coincidental, actually, that we hear Trump more and more mm-hmm. deploying that very rhetoric on the campaign trail, talking about how he will protect Christians, how we will protect the church, how Christians will have power with him in office. And, you know, what began as a transactional relationship, uh, he was going to give them policies they wanted and they were going to give him their votes and that was it. Uh, it's, it's turned into something else. And I think even though he's not one of them, I would argue that in some way that is his superpower because he is able to fight fire with fire. Mm -hmm. He's able to uh, sort of cast aside Christian virtue. He is unbound from the biblical etiquette that they themselves hold dear. And he's willing to fight in ways that no good Christian would. And as crazy as that sounds, I think that that is his greatest appeal to these people. Which is so, it's so interesting as you describe it this way, because I mean, the irony here perhaps is that despite being the champion of a number of issues that members of the evangelical community cares, care about, he doesn't exactly hold the highest esteem for the people in the community. I mean, he call, he's called them so-called Christians, pieces of you-know-what, which I'm not going to use the exact term because it's a family show, when they don't support him. So you're kind of, it sounds like what you're saying is they're aware. I mean, my question was, do they know that they're being used? And is that okay with them? Because they're using him too. In fact, I think that it is okay with many of them. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Here again, there's some nuance. There are lots of these folks who firmly deep in their bones believe that Trump has become a born-again Christian, that he is one of them, that he is uh, a, a divine tool, a, 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 uh, a God-ordained leader at this time for these purposes, and that, and that he is uh, not just fighting for them, but that he is one of them truly, right? Mm-hmm. I would say that that is a smaller minority of these mm. folks. I think the great majority of them, they recognize that he's not one of them. They recognize even that he probably, uh, you know, says these things, holds these views of them in, in private, um, and they don't really care. Uh, you know, I'm reminded, even just a couple of weeks ago, he's using this awful, vulgar language at a political rally, dropping MFs and and the like, right? 
And, and I remember seeing some of the Twitter traffic around, you know, these evangelical spaces where people were basically just shrugging and saying, yeah, like, but so what, right? Like, it, this is zero sum. He wins or we lose, right? And, and that is, those are the stakes. They are, they are stakes not just at a partisan level. They are stakes for many of these people, Jen, at a spiritual level, that this is good and evil and it's binary and Trump is the one who's the field general charging into the trenches against the evil progressives who are trying to banish Christianity from public life. It, I think the answer to this is, they don't care, but I want to know. I mean, is there anything that Trump could do at this point? Uh, like, say, for example, Trump was just talking about being a dictator on day one this week. Is there anything he could do like that that would make them turn the other way? Or what do you think they'd think of? What do you think the community thinks about him saying something like that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Donald Trump, uh, after the 2022 midterms, he threw pro-lifers under the bus in, in a pretty brazen way. Yeah. And for the first time, we really saw a bit of a slippage with his numbers as it pertains to the white evangelical base. Mm -hmm. There was a real opening there for a Pence or a DeSantis, mm -hmm. a Haley, somebody to exploit that vulnerability. There were a lot of pro-lifers very upset with him, and by extension, mm -hmm. some evangelicals really upset with him. And then shortly thereafter, Jen, Alvin Bragg delivered that first indictment, mm. and his numbers went right back up, yeah. like a hockey stick graph, right? And, and, and I think what that speaks to is a certain persecution complex that is very real in, in certain quarters of the evangelical world, where they believe that the culture is coming for them, that Christianity is under siege, that before long they won't even be able to gather physically and worship together. And Donald Trump, in fact, for... for these 91 counts and for all of the, 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 the criminal and civil proceedings, all these clouds hanging over him, they're not supporting him in spite of those things. In many ways, they're in spite, supporting him because of those things. Because when he says that I am your retribution, and when he says that they're coming after you, but they've got to get to me first. They hear it as them. They hear it as them. It, it, it resonates deeply. Tim Alberta, this is quite a book. I really appreciate you coming in and also writing this book with such um, honesty and clarity for so many of us who are not experts on the community and didn't grow up in one as you did. Uh, the book is The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory of American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism, and it's available wherever you get your books. And coming up, some very exciting news about what we're working on for tomorrow night. We're back after a quick break. Well, we have a pretty big show coming up tomorrow night. I'm really looking forward to sitting down with former Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney. We will talk about her new book. We'll talk about Donald Trump's recent comments about wanting to be a dictator on day one. We know it's longer than that. And we'll talk about how Democrats and Republicans like her can make sure he doesn't win a second term. And the former president is also set to take the stand tomorrow in Manhattan in his civil fraud trial. Former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Pre Barrar, will also join me to recap his day in court as the defense prepares to rest its case. That's all coming up tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com.